This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Article of the Month Commentary Brought to you by the Evidence-Based Neonatology Team Make sure to follow EBNeo on Twitter at EBNeo or on the web at EBNeo.org So we have the pleasure of having on with us today Dr. Nick Bamet from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Nick, how's it going today? It's going great. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have you on. I feel like it's been well overdue. So I'm glad that through the EBNeo, there'll be more opportunities. We have some things in mind. We'll talk to you about that afterwards. Well, but uh, <laughs> um, thank you uh, for uh, making the time. You're uh, here to present your commentary on the EBNeo article of the month. Um, this is an article that was uh, published in JAMA Network Open. And first author is Samuel Gentle from the University of Alabama. Um, and the title is heterogeneity of treatment effects of hydrocortisone by risk of bronchopulmonary dysplasia or death among extremely preterm infants in the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development Neonatal Research Network trial, a secondary analysis of a randomized, it's not over, a secondary analysis of a randomized clinical trial. So Nick, I think as we were discussing off air, I think maybe uh, you want to give us maybe a little bit of uh, context when it comes to uh, how did we even get to this paper? Yeah, I'd love to. Um so I had the pleasure of writing this EBNeo commentary together with um, one of my fellows, Tim Nellen. He was a chief resident at CHOP and is currently one of our third-year fellows. And so I'm leaning on the thoughtful and hard work that he did for this, and I want to acknowledge him up front. I love this paper. Um, I love this paper because it's about BPD. I love this paper because it's about medication exposures. Um, I love it because it's about heterogeneous treatment effects. Um, and also, this is a paper that is really best understood in the context um, of a rich history, really a 35-year-old saga of corticosteroids for neonatal lung disease. So I think we have to set the scene a little bit, okay? Um, and I'm going to make, I'm going to start with a couple of statements that I hope we can agree on. You can let me know if, if you don't agree. But statement number one, I think we can all agree that inflammation plays a key role in the multifactorial pathogenesis of BPD. 
I agree. We can we can agree with that. And that corticosteroids are potent anti-inflammatory medications. Okay. In the late 1980s, right, in neonatology, we began to see trials that are showing that dexamethasone leads to respiratory benefits. And in the 1990s, use of postnatal dexamethasone starts to become widespread. And then the other shoe drops, okay? Research from the late 1990s, early 2000s that are evaluating long-term outcomes suggests that there is an increase in neurodevelopmental impairment, particularly with concerns for cerebral palsy. Uh, there's a couple of meta-analyses in the early 2000s that confirm this finding. And use of dexamethasone rather than rising now begins to drop. And, and to be to be fair, um, those studies and those practices used some pretty incredible doses of dexamethasone. Yes, some did. And, you know, those trials used, um, they're very variable in the way that they used mm -hmm. um, So in 2002, the AAP puts out a statement. Um, citing the findings of those meta-analyses and essentially suggesting to neonatal providers that we pump the brakes on postnatal corticosteroid use and use declines further. There's a really nice paper uh, first authored by Michelle Walsh. It's in pediatrics, I think, in 2006, that describes these changes in postnatal use using data from uh, both the NRN and Vaughn. Right? So, so here we are. And so the neonatal community is saying, well, shoot, you know, that's that's a shame um, because it sure as hell seemed like this was help lung disease. Um, can we find a corticosteroid that seems to deliver the anti-inflammatory benefits um, without the neurodevelopmental arms? Um, and hydrocortisone is seen as a hopeful alternative based on a body of literature that I honestly don't know well enough to comment thoughtfully on. But, you know, among other things, there's animal models that um, suggest there's less harmful effects on the brain. Um, and the NRN hydrocortisone trial, which is the parent trial of this secondary analysis, is the largest trial to date um, on postnatal hydrocortisone. So uh, I know that this has been covered before, but um, you know, to briefly summarize this parent trial, and in fact, um, you know, we often try to, when we write up the BNO commentaries, we try to start with a peacock question. Um, and in this case, I actually think it's a lot easier to frame the peacock question for the parent trial and then to describe how this secondary analysis tweaks that. So the NRN hydrocortisone trial um, asks uh, among 800 preterm infants born at less than 30 weeks gestation that are on mechanical ventilation between 14 and 28 postnatal days and have received mechanical ventilation for at least seven days leading up to that point, how does a tapering 10-day course of either IV or enteral hydrocortisone compared to placebo on the primary efficacy outcome of survival without moderate or severe BPD at 36 weeks postmenstrual age, and the primary safety outcome of survival without moderate or severe neurodevelopmental impairment 
at two years. Okay. Um, and so the take homes are that they did not notice um, a statistically significant difference between hydrocortisone and placebo on either. Um, there is a modest suggestion that um, there may be a small benefit for hydrocortisone on survival without moderate severe BPD. Um, 16.6% of the babies that receive hydrocortisone survive without this outcome. Uh, compared to 13.2 in the placebo group. Um, and then for the neurodevelopmental outcomes, they're more similar. 36.9% um, that receive hydrocortisone have no no moderate severe neurodevelopmental impairment or death in two years compared to 37.3% for the placebo. Okay. Um, so pivoting a bit to think about how this secondary analysis is a little bit different. Um, so Sam and colleagues ask, does the effect of hydrocortisone depend on the baseline risk of developing grade two or three BPD as estimated by the now updated and newly published NICHD BPD outcome estimator? Okay. Um, another key difference between this paper and the parent trial is that in this study, the primary efficacy outcome swaps out BPD definitions. Okay. So here we're looking at death or grade two or three BPD as proposed by the 2019 um, Jensen definition, whereas the parent trial had used the 2001 um, consensus definition of mild, moderate, severe BPD. Um, but another thing that I think it's important to describe is that this does it depend question, does it depend on the severity of lung disease is also not coming out of thin air. Okay. Um, there's a history here too, that makes it a very worthwhile question, right? So, um, in the mid two thousands, as most of the neonatal community is curbing their dexamethasone use. Lex Doyle and colleagues published the original version of their meta-regression on pediatrics, right? And so in short, they say, all right, so it seems like postnatal corticosteroids are good for lung disease, but bad for the brain. But we know that lung disease isn't good for the brain either. Possible that this harm, and in this case, uh, the harm is being ascertained as an outcome of death or cerebral palsy, depends on the severity of lung disease in the population being treated, right? And so they gathered data from a bunch of randomized control trials of systemic postnatal corticosteroids, um, and almost all of these looked at dexamethasone specifically. And they ask, well, is there an association between the rate of chronic lung disease in the control group of each trial and the effect on death or cerebral palsy. And they conclude, yes. Uh, they say when the risk of CLD is low, uh, there's an increased risk of death or cerebral palsy, but when the risk is high, um, there is a decreased risk of death or cerebral palsy. So 
this is the paper that includes this now famous figure with the circles of varying sizes and, you know, this down sloping line with the confidence intervals. Um, and I would say that, you know, this paper has influenced clinical practice. So I remember when I was a trainee and we were caring for infants that had evolving BPD, um, we would navigate online our, our way to the prior version of the NRN BPD outcome estimator. And we would plug in the clinical characteristics of the infant that we were caring for to estimate the probability of death of BPD, right? And then with these estimates in hand, we would circle back to our attending to talk about whether or not we felt it was worth initiating a course of uh, odexamethasone, right? So an influential um, paper for sure. I think you're. I think I'm just gonna maybe hammer in that point that we're, we're through this historical context. We we get. I mean, basically, it's this <clears throat> baseline risk uh, assessment is really something that helps us figure out as a field in general that maybe blanket prophylaxis for everyone is not the way to go, and that we should assess the risk of each patient individually to then determine if the benefits of the medication are there compared yeah. to, to risk. And I think, I think that's, that's both a, it's a, it's a shift on so many levels for our field that, yeah, I think, I think this is, this was great that you, you went over that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, so in this paper, what, um, what gentle and colleagues are saying is they're saying, okay, you know, so based on these meta regressions, um, we believe that the effect of dexamethasone on death or CP likely depends on the degree of underlying lung disease. So let's probe whether the effect of hydrocortisone seems to also depend on the degree of underlying lung disease as measured by the predicted risk of developing grade 2 or 3 BPD based on clinical characteristics available at 14 days of life. All right, so, so what do they do? So for each of these 800 infants... They estimate this predicted risk by inputting gestational age, birth weight, infant sex, ventilator mode, surgical neck, and FiO2, right? And so the calculator or the model um, spits out a predicted risk for each of these infants. And on the basis of this, they divide the 800 infants into four buckets containing 200 infants each. Risk quartile one, risk quartile two three, four. So risk quartile one contains the 200 infants from the trial with the lowest risk of grade two or three BPD uh, or death, I should say. And quartile four contains the 200 infants with the highest risk of grade two or three BPD or death. All right. And then with these quartiles or buckets in place, they ask, do the efficacy and safety outcomes depend on which quartile the infant is right and so in other words they're asking is there evidence of effect modification by predicted risk uh as measured by the presence of a statistically significant interaction uh and the long and the short of it is no there is no appreciable okay, and i think that's the word here there is no appreciable evidence of effect modification uh, for either the efficacy or the safety. 
Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meadjohnson.com. I think you did a great job of, of giving us the backstory um, and and reviewing um, the trial. And, you know, to be clear, in at any of the quartile levels, none of them showed statistical significance. So um, that was a little bit of a bummer, I think I, I have to say for myself. The whole, I mean, we've been, we've been watching the saga develop throughout our training, right? It's, you know, and um, as early uh, attendings, and we keep hoping, I think, that something will show us that, that it will be helpful in this uh, group of babies. Um, I think the paper did a good job discussing um, some of the strengths and limitations. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about any of those. So, so let's jump on one that very much relates to kind of what you just commented on, right? That, that it is a bummer, right? Um, but I would say that perhaps it's not an unexpected bummer. Right. And one of the things that I'm getting at with that comment is that the parent trial was not powered for this question. It was not meant for this question, right? Um, in general, you know, we, we as a neonatal community really struggle to um, conduct neonatal trials that are large enough to detect minimally important sites uh, because it just requires an awful lot of babies and their heart to um, but in general, when you are designing a trial and one of your objectives or your main objective is to show effect modification, you need a substantially larger sample size. Uh, and so those are really, really difficult to do. And you could argue that even the parent trial may have been, um, you know, underpowered and was hoping for a relatively large effect size. Um, and it's designed. So, you know, when you dig into the numbers a little bit, um, you you can begin to question whether or not maybe there is a signal there, right? So um, if you look at, at quartile one. The quartile one is the one with the risk between 18 and 45%. Yep. The lowest yeah. risk. And I think, so my point that I'm trying to make, I think is best appreciated if you look at table two. All right. So if you look at the top of table two, you can see that um, for quartile one, all right, infants that are exposed to hydrocortisone seem to have uh, an absolute risk difference of 5% more death uh, or high grade BPD, grade two or three BPD. Whereas you, if you look at quartile four, um, the hydrocortisone group seems to have 5% less death of BPD, right? And so I think if, if we leave the very substantial statistical uncertainty that exists here alone for a second, and I'm not saying we should do that, but if we leave that alone for a second and we just look at those effect estimates, you can ask yourself, huh, you know, maybe there is a signal there 
And if this was a trial of not 800 events, but uh, rather 8,000 events, then maybe we would see statistically significant effect modification. To your point, I think they did a beautiful and eloquent job in the figures, actually. So figure 1A obviously shows that the babies who are at the highest risk did, in fact, end up having uh, the most... Uh, adverse outcomes. And, and when you contrast the, the slope there uh, to to figure 1C, which was the risk reduction, um, it's basically an, an inverse relationship um, so that, you know, they had the greatest risk reduction. So, that, I mean, definitely there's a trend there. All right. And so, and so to that point, I guess I, I'm curious to hear your comment on the fact that, as we said in the beginning, right, we're trying to look at whether the baseline risk really makes a difference in the uh, treatment effect mm-hmm. of hydrocortisone. But then looking back at the even the parent trial, these were babies that were pretty much all at very high risk. They were mm-hmm. all very sick patients. Yeah, right. And so do you think that if they had a more homogeneous population with a, with a few babies maybe even enrolled earlier on that were on less uh, support, maybe we could have had a more homogeneous spread of the baseline risk and maybe we would have seen a signal that would be stronger. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's, um, so absolutely. I think that's a great point. And, and, um, and Daphne, absolutely. Right. You look at, you look at figure one, C. that's not a straight line, you know, like right. <laughs> a little bit. It wants to curve. It wants to do the little, <laughs> <laughs> probably not the first hill that I would choose to go sledding down, but you know, <laughs> There's uh there's something there um that that could definitely catches your eye um and, and Ben your point I think you know um I do think that the authors did a really wonderful job of uh of calling out the limitations of their study right. there's another one that they called out um but you know absolutely if you just you know if you if you just stop and think about who were the babies that were um enrolled Enroll. in trial yeah. like, these are babies that were still on event between 14 and 28 days and had been on event for at least seven days. Um, you know, if you look back at, um, if you look back at the results of the parent trial, um, I don't have it in front of me, but if you look at the rates of, yeah, it's like 16%. Is they defined it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, 16, 16 or 13% was survival without yeah. moderate or severe BPD. So like rates of BPD were like in the, in the 80, 80, yeah. 80 something percent. Right. Right. So their quartiles don't necessarily represent our, t- our entire NICU population, right? Or the at-risk population, I'd say. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I think it, an important message for this paper, and for all papers, really, and it's something that we're frequently guilty of, is that we love to extrapolate data from a uh, study to other populations or broader populations um, to whom that those data don't necessarily apply, right? Um, and so, yes, you know, I think that I think you should not look at this data and assume that there would be a lack of effect modification if you were looking for an interaction in a population that was more heterogeneous and had mm-hmm. infants that were very, very low risk of um, developing death of BPD uh, and perhaps some infants at, at higher risk, although there was I say that this uh, this cohort was enriched in infants that were very high risk. Um, mm-hmm. I think another another thing to that point is if you look at um, Ben, you referred to that the table one, right? When we first yeah. started to look at this, rolling my paper to try to find it. Um, Did I refer to table one? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. table one. Uh, 
Yeah, I think you did. I think you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy doing that. Uh, <laughs> if you look at, right, so they took these 800 kids and they put them into four buckets, 100 mm-hmm. each, right? And they describe the estimated risk of grade two, three BPD or deaths in each of those quartiles. And you can you can get the sense that this population is a bunchy group, right? So risk quartile one ranges from 18 to 45. That's a pretty good spread for risk quartile one. You look at risk quartile two, it's a pretty tight spread from 46 mm-hmm. to 53, which isn't that different from quartile three at 54 to 65. And then quartile four, 66 to 84. You know, there's a little bit more spread there. So now, real- it's barely, barely, barely ten percent, ten percentage points, and and the quartile one really includes like almost twenty percent. Yeah, right. So 20, more than twenty percent. It's really quartile one and quartile four that that are the most distinct. Quartiles yeah. two and three are awfully similar to each other. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, and it speaks to this limitation that um, this is a specific population that had all of them had fairly significant lung disease, which is what was required to make them eligible and relevant to mm-hmm. what's interesting to me about this is that I, I'm, I like when when we are conducting trials that are kind of similar in the idea of what they're trying to test across different institutions different countries and so to me I, I look at this and I cannot not think of the premilock trial right where um, they also used hydrocortisone and and they are showing and they are showing a benefits uh, they are showing a benefit and one of the big criticism of the Prevenal trial was that the rates of BPD were quite high, but still they were less than than in, in this parent trial. Sure. And it's funny that very recently they did the same kind of analysis, not using using sort of a modified BPD calculator. They didn't use the NRN one, but they're looking at the same thing and they are seeing a bit of a signal. So I think what's super interesting about this whole commentary that we're having now is that you may be tempted to think by reading this current paper, maybe even the parent paper, that it's all done for hydrocortisone and we're probably not going to need to revisit this. But it, it may not be. It may not be. That if was going to be my question today. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, just that. And we posed this question to Dr. Waterberg. Yeah. And we said, are we done studying uh, postnatal steroids? But... It seems like the answer is still probably no. Oh, what? I think we're we're getting there. We're refining it. <laughs> he gave you a no there. way, Daphne. That was a no way. <laughs> no way. You know, I mean, the thing the thing with steroids, what makes them what makes them compelling, what makes this hard, is that we all know in our hearts of hearts, based on our own clinical experience, that they work in some instances. Yes. Right. They work. Def, some kids definitely respond. No. Yeah. I, I wonder too if, if um, as we're in this era of individualized, personalized medicine, maybe it's something else about the patient and not their risk. You know that that pre- predisposes them to to uh, be successful on a certain medication. I think as we're starting to do this, uh, you, you want know, to discriminate genomics and you want the, to discriminate between the steroid responders and the steroid non. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, the, what's different about those two groups? Um, and work our way backwards, I guess. Yeah, and really, you know, I mean, you're highlighting the reality that that clinical medicine is nuanced, right? And like we all have mm-hmm. this goal of of personalized individualized medicine. Um, and I think, I think to me, what's really interesting about heterogeneity of treatment effects from a clinical research standpoint is that it's an effort to bridge evidence-based clinical practice 
and you know that aspiration of individualized medicine by acknowledging in the same way that you know we know to be true in clinical medicine that things are nuanced that you know from a research perspective you know the devil's in the details and and things are also 100 nuanced you know you described the permalog trial ben um yeah you know same same general preterm population same drug but the intervention is done at a completely different time. And in a lot of ways, yeah. in populations that are very, very different, we're talking about prophylaxis mm-hmm. and babies at risk um, for adrenal insufficiency versus babies that, you know, seem to be a very high risk of developing lung disease because, you know, they're two to four weeks out and they're still requiring a certain amount of support. And so, you know, extrapolating the results of early hydrocortisone to decisions about late hydrocortisone is... It's inappropriate. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's hard to um to generate good evidence for all of those distinct nuanced differences um in the decisions that we're making with local medicine and that we should Yeah, because because I think the NICU has evolved tremendously as well, right? We we our babies survive. Number one, our babies have there's a a wide variety of patients where it used to be, oh, the preemies of the NICU, but now a 20 to 24 weeker is very different from a 28 weeker. And, and then the late uh, preterms are a different population. And so we end up having this really multifaceted population. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, it's, that's, that's, that was my point originally, but that is, I think it's very good that we're studying uh, the same kind of medication in various trials, trying to, to get to circle the question at the very least and maybe glimpse at an answer it almost like this picture of the black hole right it's like you you don't really see anything but it's the surrounding that maybe gives you an idea of where it is and and where the truth lies and i think um yeah i think it's um it's a super it's super interesting intellectual endeavor for sure absolutely nick thank you so much for making the time to be with us this was phenomenal and um pleasure yeah we look forward to uh chatting with you again soon thank you i do as well thanks Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the dash incubator.org you can also message the show on instagram or x formerly known as twitter at NICU podcast thanks again for listening and see you next time this podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice if you have any medical concerns please see your primary care practitioner thank you <laughs>